Well, we're going to continue our series, Raising Dry Bones, this morning. So if you will, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We saw last week that, um, those of you who are here, that Nehemiah had a pretty successful resume. His resume would say that he was the cupbearer to the king for many years. And it was a, it was a really good job. It was a dangerous job, but it was a, it was a really good job. It had stability. Uh, his job had a lot of stability. As long as the king, somebody didn't try to poison the king, there was a lot of stability for him. And so uh, his resume that w- would also say that we saw last week that he was concerned about problems, that he had a strong conviction about God's character, that he confessed his sins on a regular basis, had confidence in God's promises, and had a commitment to get involved. And so uh, this, that's, that's the summary of what we looked at and uh, studied through last week where we focused and, uh, and centered on learning how to pray. Well, I say, what's, what am I missing? Of course. I'm sorry, Corey. Happy Father's Day. I'll, t- I'll take you to lunch afterwards. <laughs> but uh, this week... Uh, as we, as we head into the second chapter of Nehemiah, um, let me ask you a question. How many of you finished your homework this week? Started it. Now, there wasn't... Okay. Now, there wasn't a time frame. I didn't give you a time frame. I didn't tell you you had to. I'm just curious as to who all might have. Uh, so the homework is, those of you who weren't here, I want you to read Esther first, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. Slowly through Nehemiah. There's no time frame, like I said, no timeline, but uh, and if you didn't, it's okay. Uh, but, but as you do, as we go through these studies of Nehemiah every week, you're going to have a better perspective of uh, the history uh, and, and as, we're, as we go through Nehemiah. You'll get more out of the messages each week if you read Esther, Ezra, and then slowly begin to read through Nehemiah. So remember, Nehemiah, remember his place and, and, and how he fit into Old Testament history. He didn't rely on his, his uh, resume. Uh, to get, when it was time to get involved, right? He, uh, he got out his tools so he could handle what was in front of him. And that's what we're going to look at this week. We're going to look, first of all, we're going to see that um, Nehemiah had five tools in his toolbox, and then we'll also look at five jobs that he tackled as he, uh, as he went through, uh, went through this, uh, this process. And so those are some essential ele- elements that we're going to have to realize for rebuilding that were essential for Nehemiah, but they're also essential for us here too at Crossway. Last week, uh, it was learning how to pray. This week, it's, it's tackling a tough job. So let's all stand as we read. Uh, it's a lot of verses, a lot of text. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter, 20 verses. Uh, we'll start in, uh, in verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. 
Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that, may, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is, be, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. And with Sanballat the, the, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And as I arose in the night, I, I and a few men with me, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by, by the valley gate in the direction of, of, the, of the dragon's well and on the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate by the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate and returned. Entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone and what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we are about to receive through this chapter, Lord, as we head into rebuilding and revitalization ourselves, Lord, let us see that the truth that you're telling us through Nehemiah and his rebuilding of Jerusalem has so much practical application to our rebuilding of Crossway. So, Lord, I just pray that you would open the minds and the hearts of everyone here this morning so that we may receive this truth and that you would get all of the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so our first point, I'll just go ahead and tell you that, our first point, tools and Nehemiah's toolbox. The tools in Nehemiah's toolbox. Now, personally, me, I don't have a lot of tools at home. I'm not very handy. So I don't have a lot of tools. Melissa will tell you. I'm going to get her back here living me that judgy look. But uh, I'd, I'd, honestly, I'd rather buy a book than a drill. And that's been a problem for me over the years. When stuff needs to be fixed, I usually call my dad. He's got a shop at his house that looks like Home Depot. He's got so many tools, I don't know how he keeps up with them all. But uh, Nehemiah had a lot of tools, too. And he pulled them out one by one when he needed them. 
And then we're going to go through these five tools that he pulled out of his toolbox. The first one is patience. Patience. Look at verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had, I had not been sad in his presence. So Nehemiah was a man of action. And when he prayed, it was natural for him to, to provide an opportunity, or it was natural for him to ask God to provide him an opportunity to speak to the king about what was burdening him and what it, why, why his heart was so burdened for Jerusalem. But he had patience and he waited for the right time and waited for God to make the way for him to speak to the king. Look back at verse 1 in chapter 1. It says, uh, the, word, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. So if you see, when I'm talking about patience, you see it right here. The report about Jerusalem that we saw in verse 1 came to Nehemiah from his brother in the month of Chislev, all right? But he goes to the king to ask for provision, and, 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 and well, I guess the king saw, saw his sadness and then questioned him, but he goes to the king in the month of Nisan. That's four months. That's a four-month difference. So he spent four months fasting and praying for the right time and the right opportunity to speak about this to the king. So he waited patiently for the Lord on an answer. He wept and he prayed, but he also waited and prayed. All right, so have you ever had to wait for God to answer a prayer? We all have, yeah. Uh, all of us have, have really. Waiting is not wasted time. That's something that I think we should realize. A lot of times we pray and pray and pray for something and God doesn't do it immediately and move when we ask him to move. You know, when we pray that first prayer, we want him to move right then in our lives. It might take him six months. It might take him six years. But that waiting and that continual prayer is not wasted time. It's not. The patience that Nehemiah had here may very well have given him some fresh insight about how he needed to approach the king when the time did come. So patience, this tool that he's using, patience, is a tool that, that God desires every one of us to get real familiar with. Right? Because we're going to have to use patience a whole lot. All right? That's the first tool that Nehemiah pulled out of his toolbox, patience. The second tool is trust. Trust. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad with the city, the place of my father's tombs, the place where my father's tombs lies is desolate and its gates have been consumed by father. So he was sad in the last part of verse one. And this word is used three other times to describe how he looked when he was in the presence of the king. So then the king asked him a question and uh, he wanted to he wanted to find out why Nehemiah wasn't his usual chipper, happy self. So he asks him uh, this question. Why is he sad? And, and uh He's kind of freaked out when Artaxerxes asks him the question because he knew the king only wanted to be around happy people. That was an actual edict and order from the king that if anybody was sad in his presence, they would be put to death. He didn't want uh, sadness around him. And verse 2 says he was very much afraid, which means that a terrible fear came over him. That's how the word's translated. So he was afraid, I think, for two reasons. He knew that he was expected to be perfectly content in the, pre in the presence of the king. People were sad around the king. Like I said, they were, if, if they rained on his parade, they were executed. 
And the second thing was that he was about to ask the king to reverse a policy that he had made years before about the construction of Jerusalem, the reconstruction of Jerusalem. That policy is in Ezra chapter 4. Um, Ezra chapter 4, verse 21. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down. Ezra chapter 4, verse 21 says, Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. So Artaxerxes, years before, had made that order to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, at this point, he knew, especially when the king recognized and realized he was sad, he knew that it was going to take the power of God to get him to change his mind. It would only take, only the power of God could get the king to change his mind. And so I would presume that every one of us in his situation would probably be just as afraid as he was at this moment. Some of us are afraid now. We've got situations in our life that, that, that scare us, that give us fear. You're worried uh, something that you did in your past might catch up with you. Maybe that's some of us. Maybe you're afraid of the present. You're paralyzed by the fear of something. Uh, I got an unhealthy fear of snakes. Just being honest, I'm scared to death of snakes when I see them. Miss Pat's scared of spiders. I learned that the other day. I learned a lot about Miss Pat the other day. If you want to know, just come up and ask. I got a lot of dirt on that woman. <laughs> <laughs> but but some people might actually be, be scared of the future as well. So some of us are afraid of the past. Some of us are afraid of things in the present. And some of us are fearful of the future, of things that might happen in the future, even death. But I want to ask you a question. And apply this question to whatever it is in your life that, that, that you have fear with. Whatever that you're afraid of or fearful of, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? See, fear keeps us from taking the steps that we need to take. Fear can, it can paralyze us in, a lot, in, in many situations. There's certainly some, some fear I know amongst us as we move into this revitalization and rebuilding time. But we cannot let that fear keep us from following the lead of God. Now, fortunately for Nehemiah, his faith was larger than his fear. He did the right thing because he believed God's promises. And we talked about that last week, that he believed the promises of God. Look, look back at verse 2. Uh, at the end of verse 2, going into verse 3, he says, I was very much afraid, but I said. I was very much afraid, but I said. So instead of the fear paralyzing him, he was afraid, he admits it, the fear propelled him into action. And it, that was only because of the months and months he spent in prayer, the four months that he had spent fasting and praying, that had prepared him for this specific moment. Even though he was afraid when it became real to him, he didn't stop and let it stop him and let it, and let it end what, what he was praying about. That fear actually propelled him into action. And then he used a little wisdom here. If you look in the verse, it said he affirmed the king. He's saying, long live the king. And in verse 3, he explains... Why, why he was sad. He said, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? So he said some things there to the king, but he, it was what he didn't say that we should notice. He never mentioned the name of the city. That's important. That's important. He never mentioned Jerusalem by name. The reason is, I believe that, and a lot of commentators have the same exact reasoning, is that uh, Jerusalem at this point had a long history, uh, and, and it could have had the king thinking about politics, it could have had the th king thinking about national security, uh, but instead of going political, he went personal. 
All right. He, he said why, what, what he did say was, I want to honor the burial place of my fathers. That's how he worded it to the king. And that made a lot of sense to the king because Persia honored their dead as well. So he, he, he appealed to the king personally. So his fear, that fear could have left him being timid. It could have left him being, you know, just real paralyzed. But instead of that fear, instead of the fear paralyzing him, he, had, he trusted God. And so patience and trust are two tools that he used. Let's move on to the next one. The next to the third tool that we see, and he's already been using this since the start. We talked about it last week. The third tool is prayer. Prayer. Verse 4 starts with, with the, um, the direct question from the king. After he gave him this explanation of why he was sad, then the king says, well, what would you request? What do you want? And so before he answered him, he consulted God. Look at the text. Before he answered him, he consulted God. And I love this. He said, then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I assume this is a short prayer because, because it happened between the time the king asked him the question and the time he answered the question. So there wasn't a lot of time there, but for him to just bow on his knees and, uh, or, or hit his knees and bow his head and pray. And, I, and really, if he'd have done that, he'd have probably been suspected of treason. So this, this prayer, this quick prayer that he prayed to God had been backed up for this, by this four months of fasting and praying that he'd already been doing. And so it's, it's, that encourages me, and, and, and I hope it encourages y'all, because we can pray at any time and in any place and doesn't have to be a long, audible prayer, right? Right before you have to give an answer to a boss or before you react to your spouse. I need to do this one a lot more. i pray before I react to my spouse. Before you discipline your kids or, or even before we look for ways to, to impact our community with the gospel. Just pray. Just, just reach out and pray. It doesn't have to be audible. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out prayer because that comes, these the short prayers like he just prayed here, the reason he was able to, to have a short prayer that he was confident in and consult with God is because he already had a deep connection that was established probably prior to this four months, but definitely during this four months of fasting and praying. And uh, that's how we pray continually. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to 5.17 to continually pray. And, and that's how we do it. We just continually stay connected with God. So he used patience, trust, and prayer. He also used planning. That's the fourth one. That's the fourth tool, planning. Planning. So he prayed and lifted his heart to God. And now, at this point, he's got to open his mouth to the king. Verses 5 to 8 says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given uh, for me to governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they, may, that, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So the one thing we see here 
is that he practiced being dependent on God through prayer. He was dependent on God through prayer, but he also practiced deliberate planning. That's a model that I think we need to see more of and we need to hear more about because I think a lot of times some people, all they do is focus on prayer. All they do is pray. And, uh, and, and, and some people focus only on planning without prayer, but it's not an either or, it's a both and. Right? We've got to be planning things, but we also have to be praying to God through it as well. So, so we're called to pray and plan. And, and look, look, look how uh, he, knew, he knew how to answer the king's questions because he had already been planning for this very moment in this very situation. He had already predicted the question that the king asked about how long it was going to be, and he had an answer for him. He said he gave him a definite answer. So, so he knew also how to plan for the trip and some of the things that he was going to need, uh, the letters specifically that he needed from the king for his safe passage through the different territories. And, and he didn't stop there. He asked for permission to take timber out of the king's forest. So he took time planning before he actually went to the king. He was able to make the request for the king's permission and the king's protection and also the king's provision because he spent time planning for this encounter. So patience, trust, prayer, and planning. Now here's the last tool that he pulls out of his toolbox. It's testifying. Verses 8 to 10. So he gave testimony about God's goodness. And, and, and God answered uh, his prayers and God guided his mind and God directed his speech and God met his needs. And look at the last part of verse eight. He said, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So only God was going to cause the king to change his mind. That was only way, the only way Artaxerxes was going to change his mind is because of the hand of God. And Nehemiah knew that and he knew that everything that was happening had everything to do with the arranging of God had nothing to do with human manipulation. It was like what, what Psalms 118 says. It says, the Lord has done this, and, it, and, it, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So he was thorough in his planning, but it wouldn't have been enough if it weren't for God's timing and God's provision. So as we here get closer and closer to this revitalization that we've been talking about, I'm confident, I'm confident that we're going to see the good hand of God on us. But we have to reach down in our toolbox and use these tools, patience, trust, prayer, and planning. And when God moves among us, then we got to stand up and, and, and testify about it. God is going to be good to us. I'm confident of that. He's going to see us through this rebuilding and this revitalization. And as he does, and as we use these tools, that we've got to tell the world about what God has done for us at Crossway. So those are the tools in his toolbox. Let's move on to our next point. Here's the second one. Tasks for tackling a tough job. Tasks for tackling a tough job. And this is a verses, verses 11 through 20, and, and, and I'll, I'll come back to verses 9 and 10 at the end. My mom can uh, testify to this, but there, there are several reasons that as I grew up, I admired my dad. One of the reasons that I admired him was how he could he could do projects like home improvement projects. He could do things. He could look at it and, and he would know what he needed to do first. He would know, you know, whether he was building something or fixing something, he would knew, know what it was going to take and, and the tools that he was going to. He knew 
what he had to do. And I, that just amazed me. Uh, whether he had to think about it for a minute or what, he knew what he was going how, how to start and complete whatever project it was. Well, Nehemiah here was a master builder too. And so we're going to look at five tasks here in the second half of the chapter. Here's the first one. Five tasks that he five tasks that he tackled. The first one was he replenished his resources. Nehemiah replenished his resources. Look at verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. So when he got to Jerusalem, uh, at this point he could appreciate why his brother was so bummed out when he got back and gave him the report. He was able to really examine and study all of the ruin and, and the rubble in the city and how destroyed and desolate it was. And, and so there was a, but there was a bigger priority for him at this point. He needed to rest. This trip had taken him four months. So when he first got, this is eight months later, when he finally gets to the city from the time he first got the report. It took him four months to fast and pray and go to the king. And then the trip took him four months to make. And so it took a lot out of him at this point in time. Ezra, Ezra did the same thing when he traveled to Jerusalem. He rested for three days. Ezra 8.32 says, Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. Jesus did the same thing. A lot of times he would go out into the wilderness alone. He'd get away from his disciples and he'd go for rest and, time, and spend time with the Father. So we, too, each and every one of us, need to make sure that we replenish our resources on a regular basis. That's a biblical principle. It is. Don't try to make major decisions when you're tired. Don't do it. I know when I'm tired, I'm, I'm not very sharp. I'm not very sharp when I'm awake or not tired, but I'm, I'm definitely not very sharp when I'm tired. And I'm grouchy when I'm tired. And so sometimes all I need to do is sleep and wait till the next day, right? And, and, and before I tackle something pretty big. So Nehemiah needed to replenish his resources. So he waited three days. He rested for three days. All right, here's the next, next task he tackled. He assessed the need. Nehemiah assessed the need. Verses 12 to 16 says, And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind for, to, to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mouth to pass. So I went up, so I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So he knew in order for him to lead this project, he needed to get a first-hand account, a first-hand picture of what needed to be done. He needed to scout out the damage. And as he did it, he made mental notes. And there's three things that we can see out of these verses that I just read that, that Nehemiah figured out as he was examining and assessing the, the problem and assessing the need and determining the damage. He determined that, that there was going to be some some things about this job. Number one, he it was a demanding job. He determined that it was going to be a demanding job. The route on these walls were several miles long, and the new wall needed to be three or four foot thick, 15 to 20 foot high. We'll see that later on as we read through the book. But uh, the, And it wasn't going to be easy on him to do it. He knew that, uh, that he and his people had to put forth their best effort 
in order to make this work. So the same is true for us here at Crossway. Kingdom work is demanding. It is. It's going to be... It's going to take a lot out of us. It's going to require a lot of us to rebuild and to revitalize. But but it's worth every ounce of effort and energy we put into it. It's worth every bit of it. So it was a demanding job. It was also a dangerous job. A dangerous job. He went out at night because there were enemies all around him. There were enemies here. And so he didn't say anything to anyone until the right time. And, uh, and, and, and so if we share before the right time, it can cause information to get leaked out carelessly. Uh, and, and that might bring the work to an end before it even gets started. And so that's the, the, Nehemiah figured out that this, um, this was going to be a dangerous assignment. So he, it was like everything that he was doing was on a need to know basis until it was time to, to happen. It was a dangerous assignment, it was a demanding assignment, and it was also a joint venture. It was a joint venture. So only by his by his assessment here, he was only going to be able he was only he was going to be able to calculate how to divide the work up, right? He had to go on this assessment and figure out how many people he needed. What all it was it gonna was it gonna take to rebuild the wall? And then he was gonna divide the work up among the people. And so Applied it to us here at Crossway. We're going through this. We talk about this revitalization maybe starting in September. But this time here before it is a time of preparation. And I know some people are wondering, well, why, why have a time of preparation? Why don't we just jump right in to fixing our problems? Why don't we just dive right in? And, and look, there's got to be an assessment. This here, what Nehemiah do, was doing, is what we're doing. There has to be an assessment and a survey of the need. We've got to know where and how we're sick before we can actually start to fix our sickness. We've got to know where our sickness is before we can actually start the work of healing. And that takes patience and trust and planning before we can even begin the actual work. Right? Everything Nehemiah has done here is what we're doing through this next two or three months. And so that leads us to the third task. After replenishing his resources, after assessing the need, he recruited workers. Nehemiah recruited workers. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And I'm assuming that um, there's just no way or there's some way that it's not mentioned in the text. He did something to gather up a, a group of people. There was a group of potential workers in front of him. And the first thing he did is identify, he identifies with the people. Look at what he said in verse 17. He said, then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. And so the next thing he does, after he identifies with the people who are standing there, he, he offers up some spiritual perspective on the situation. He said, you know, they're in trouble, but it's not just because Jerusalem had been destroyed. He sees their spiritual contempt. They're, they're the site of the, of the walls. These walls have been collapsed. The city has been desolate and destroyed for over a century, and they were living in it, right? They were, they were fine living in it. They had no, no desire to fix it. And so he reckon, recognized that there were spiritual issues involved here. Um, and so them, the, 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 with it being destroyed for over a century, the people here had, um, had 
they had the impression that God had abandoned his people because they had not, the city had not been rebuilt for so long. And so this building project, whether it's, whether it's what Nehemiah is going through here or it's a rebuilding project that we're going through here at Crossway, it's more than just brick and mortar. As God's people, we've got to be aware of the spiritual opportunities and the challenges that we're going to face during the process. When God tells us it's time to move, we move, right? We don't, we don't wait anymore, right? We, we have patience as we prepare, but when we've been shown what our issues are and through prayer, we've been given a plan and we trust that, that, the, that God has shown us how to move, then we take immediate action. We stop waiting. Just like everybody knows, everybody here knew exactly what was required in the text. He said, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be a reproach or a disgrace. Everybody knew that the job had to start and begin immediately without further delay. And he's asking a lot of these people, but he's not afraid to ask them to step up to the plate. The sacrifices are going to be big. They're going to be huge. All these people are going to have to take time off work, time away from their families to rebuild the walls. Before people can respond, they, they need to know that there is someone greater Someone greater than Nehemiah behind this project. Which leads us to the next task. The next one. Nehemiah inspired confidence in the people. Nehemiah inspired confidence in the people. Verse 18 says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to good work. So, the rebuilding here is important. And while the, the, that's, that the rebuilding of the wall is definitely important it's because it's basically why the book has been written, the main theme, though, of the book is the sufficiency of God. So Nehemiah's mind was saturated with God and saturated with the goodness of God. And he wants the work that is done, whether it's by him or the workers, to be the same. He wants their work to be saturated by God. He wants their minds to be saturated by God because he knows that if it's not, then th this process, this project's not going to be successful. And so as we move into our rebuilding, we know that revitalization is important, right? It's necessary. The rebuilding here is necessary. But the main focus we've got to have is the sufficiency of God. That's the main focus we've got to have. Look at his testimony. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which had been spoken to me. So he didn't come to, to Jerusalem because he was a manipulator or because the king was generous to him, but only by God as a God is a sovereign provider. That's the, that's the only way he got there. That's the only way he got to Jerusalem because God provided his way there. And so since God had done all of that, he was definitely going to help them rebuild the walls, right? And so what he did, the first thing he told them, the first thing he told the workers were the things that God had already done. He was firing them up for what they were about to do and what God was about to do through them. He focused the on the glory and the greatness of God. And when you think about it, what did they say? What was their response when he said, I told them how the hand of God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Their, their reaction, immediate reaction was, let's start rebuilding. Let's go. If God's been this good to you already, I know he's going to see this process through. They could have been apathetic. They could have, uh, they, 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 they've been living in this rubble and this, in this, this 
ruined city for so long, they could have just been apathetic and could have just stayed there. They could have reminded Nehemiah that the Jews had already tried to rebuild in Ezra 4 and were stopped by the king's orders. And, and we, we, we face those same two issues here. So either we're happy with us four and no more because that's the way we've always done it. Or, well, we kind of tried that before and it didn't work. And look, I'm thankful that, that so far I haven't seen this church respond that way. We have not responded that way. I've seen our response be just like these builders. Let's go. Let's rebuild. We see the hand of God at work. Let's do this. Let's rebuild. Someone defined leadership in this way. They said the art of getting people to do what they ought to do. Or, or here's leadership. It's the art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. That's what leadership is. And I'm proud, as I stand up here, I'm proud that, you, that you've called me one of your pastors. And, and I want to do all that I can to help us do the things that we ought to do because we want to do them. Not because somebody's twisting our arm to do them. Not because somebody has manipulated a situation or anything like that. But because we see God's hand at work amongst us. We see the, the, the issues, the deficiencies that we've had and the problems that have, that have come from it. And now we know what we ought to do. We want to do it. The gracious God of hand uh, of God, the gracious hand of God is on us. I'm fully convinced of that. I'm fully convinced of that. So the fifth task here, the last one, comes almost immediately after this decision to make an impact. It, Nehemiah, Nehemiah handled opposition. Nehemiah handled opposition. All right, we're going to go back to verses 9 and 10. I, we skipped them before. Then we're going to look at 19 and 20. Verses 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers and of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Hornonite and Tob Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Hornonite, Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem, they got a third person joining them now, Geshem the Arab heard it. They mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. So we all know this. What I'm about to say, every one of us knows this. When we decide to do to get serious about kingdom work, Satan is going to oppose us. He's going to come up against us. And this trio of people right here became very vocal in their attacks on Nehemiah and the workers. Look what they did. The first thing they did is they mocked him. Verse 19 says they mocked and despised us. So, so verbal, verbal attacks have been part of Satan's strategy since the beginning. So they mocked him. They laughed at the workers. They belittled both their resources and their plans. And then they suggested that what they were doing was rebelling against the king. And that was a weapon that worked in Ezra 4. That, that, that very suggestion that they made in Ezra 4 worked to stop the rebuilding. But look how Nehemiah dealt with them. He didn't answer their lies. He didn't engage in conversation with them. He didn't ignore them either. The first thing he did was, was lift up God, which, is, which was the one who called him to the work to begin with. Look at verse 20. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. 
the God of heaven will give us. He, didn't, he wasn't concerned about their lies or in, in, um, their, their insults or their mocking. or in, um, He was concerned that God was going to get the glory through this project. God was going to get the glory through this rebuilding. And that was his main concern. And so he wanted, he wanted the people to know the workers that were there. He wanted them to know that God had everything in control. Even though Geshem, he, he controlled the southern access to the city and the other two patrolled the north and the east, it didn't faze him. He wasn't rattled. Nehemiah wasn't rattled. He made three things clear to him. Rebuilding the wall was God's work. The Jews were God's servants and their opponents had no part in the matter. He made that stuff very clear to him. Look at the last part of verse 20. Pretty straightforward. We, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. That's what, that, that, that's, a, that's what our attitudes have to be towards Satan. You have no past right here at Crossway. You have no present authority in this body of believers. And you definitely have no future role in this church at all. We, we, we need to expect opposition, spiritual opposition, and really be thankful for it. Because, and here's why we should be thankful for it, because it's a sign that we've angered the enemy. It's a sign that we're doing something we've impeded on some kind of territory that he thinks is his. If their position moves or shoots at moving targets, if we're sitting still, if we're satisfied with the way things are, we're not disturbing him. We're not a threat to him at all. So the tools are out of the toolbox, right? Patience, trust, prayer, planning, and testifying. They're out of the toolbox. Are we ready to pick them up and start using them? It's not enough for us to just rely on our religious resume, what we've done in the past. We've got some jobs ahead of us, right? We've got to replenish our resources. We've got to assess what our need is. We have to recruit workers, inspire confidence, and we have to handle the opposition because it's going to come. And that's a continual commitment and a long-term job, a long-term task. God wants us fully engaged for the long haul. Because we know this isn't going to be a, a short-term solution to rebuild and to revitalize. It's going to take some time. Reminds me of two guys in a, in a pickup truck who drove to the lumber yard. One of them walked to the office and said, we need some four-by-twos. The worker there kind of looked at him kind of strange. He said, you mean two-by-fours? And he said, hold on, let me check with my buddy. So he walked back out to the truck. And when he came back, he said, yeah, that's what I meant. I need some two-by-fours. And the worker said, all right, well, how long do you need them? He paused and he looked at him. He said, well, I better go check again. He came back in a few minutes. He said, we need them for a long time. We're going to build a house. <laughs> if we're going to be a part of God's reconstruction here at Crossway, if we want to see God rebuild some things in our own lives, then we're going to need to rely on him for a long time. Psalms 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. It's time to rebuild. It's time for us to rebuild. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you so much. Lord, gosh, we love you this morning. And we thank you for the provisions that you've made in this church already. And Lord, we, we come to you and we recognize that there have been issues 
over the years, but, but, but we thank you that, that, we have, that you have given us the eyes to see it. And we know that you have given us the, the ability to recognize it in time. And so, Lord, I pray as we go through these next several months, I pray that we will have patience. I pray that, 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 we, will, uh, that we will trust exactly what you're leading us to. We will trust your promises that you've made to us in your word. Lord, I pray that, that we will continue to be people of prayer, that we will lean on you and we will come to you and we will seek you out for the direction that we need to go. But Lord, also that we'll plan, we'll take what you've told us and, and we'll put it down and we'll plan for the coming months and the coming years that are ahead of us, Lord. And as you, as you begin to work in this body of believers, Lord, I pray that we will all stand up and hold our hands up and testify to your goodness. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the body of people that are here that you have sent to us. And I pray now that if there be any amongst us who are apart from you, Lord, that uh, through the preaching and hearing of your gospel right now, that they will come to know your son Jesus this morning. We love you. We'll give you all the honor, all the praise, and definitely all the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So... It's tough to think about rebuilding. It, it, it almost seems impossible. What Nehemiah had to do, what we're facing, it almost seems, it can seem like it's an impossible task unless we know the Lord. If we know the Lord, then we know what, he, what we're doing, that He can do and He will do. And so I pray right now that, that if you've gone through this life, whatever it is, is going on in your own personal life. If you see things in your life that you seem are impossible, it's only because you're not trusting in God. And if you haven't trusted Him in a real relational way, then I want you to know that, that, that you might be His enemy. The Bible says that those who are not children of God are enemies of God, and that is not the place that we want to ever be. We're all there when we're first born. And I pray that at some point in all of our lives, we come from, from an enemy of God and become a child of God, and how that happens is through the acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus. Because see, God has a requirement, and that's perfection. None of us can be perfect. None of us can follow God's uh, requirements perfectly, His laws. We can't do it. He requires perfection. But we all sin every single day. Romans 3.23, we all fall short of the glory of God. But He's made a provision. He's made a way for us. Just like He made a way for Nehemiah to build the wall in Jerusalem, he's made provisions for us as well. And his provision that he made for us to be right with him is Jesus Christ. He sent his own son to come down and take the flesh of humans, the humans that he created, the ones that shook their fist at him and hated him, that still do today, that are his enemies. He took on the very same flesh and he lived the life that they couldn't live, the perfect, perfect life that they couldn't live and, and never sinned one time. And that qualified him to go to the cross and take on our punishment and the wrath of God. So he took on the wrath of God for us, the punishment that we deserve to offer us the heaven that he deserved. So we have, he was thrown in the tomb, buried. Three days later, God rose him again and proven of that sacrifice. And so if we will repent and believe, repent of our sin, turn from the life that we've been living and believe on Jesus... Believe that he was exactly who God says he is, his son who came to live and die for us, 
but he rose him from the dead and he's living, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. If we believe that with all of our heart, then God will save us. He says, for those who cry on the name of God, everyone who cries out on the name of, the God, on the name of God will be saved. So if you've never cried out on the name of God, I'm, I'm asking you this morning, today's the day of salvation. You never know what's going to happen when you walk out those doors. 